Hey, welcome. Thanks for joining us uh, wherever you are, all throughout different locations. We're so glad you did. Uh, my name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors at Sojourn, and we are convinced that God wrote a book, and it's an amazing mercy to us that his word is before us, that it is inspired and inerrant and can inform and instruct uh, all that we say and do, and that's what we want for our lives uh, that's what we want for your life. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you this morning to, to take up your physical copy of God's Word, to open it up to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. And we'll finish up, uh, as we continue to work through the Gospel of Mark, we'll finish up our uh, time in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9 this morning. And I'm going to start reading for us in verse 38. This is God's Word. John said to him, Teacher, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. And salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will it make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. Have you ever been stuck in a a cycle of misunderstanding? It's easy to get into that place. I get in that place often as a parent where either I'm, I'm speaking to my kids or they're speaking to me, and then all of a sudden we just get to this point where we're just blankly staring at one another because there's a misunderstanding. Either they don't understand me or I don't understand them, and I often say, I, I, I can't understand what you are saying. Or when they don't understand me, often what it does for me is it provokes me to get louder or angrier. The disciples, as we turn to the Gospel of Mark, are stuck in a, a cycle kind of of misunderstanding. Jesus has told them about his, his death and how it's upcoming and his, his path to the cross. He told them that this is what's going to happen, that he's going to be delivered over, handed over to men, that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to be tortured, that he's going to be killed, and he's going to raise again. He told of his death and his resurrection, and the disciples just don't get it. And Jesus, very much unlike me and my misunderstandings, he doesn't get louder, he doesn't get madder. Instead, he comes alongside these disciples comes alongside them as their shepherd, and he gently and he patiently teaches them not only about the cross, not only about where he's going and what he's going to do, he, he teaches them of the way of the cross. He teaches them of the path of following Jesus. He teaches them not just about his cross then, but the way to take up theirs, as he called them to do in chapter eight. You see, Jesus, in this passage, calls all disciples to embrace the cost of following him with the knowledge that the kingdom of God that he has said and declared is at hand is bigger and better than they think and than we think, but also a lot more costly than we can ever know. See, disciples need to draw near 
need Jesus to draw near to them, to instruct them, to teach them, to help them out of misunderstanding, because the way of the cross is not natural. It's not naturally embraced. And so we need a savior, a pioneer, a perfecter of our faith to go in front of us. And that's what Jesus does. And that's what he's doing with his disciples. And so Mark turns to one disciple specifically here at the start of our passage in verse 38. He turns to a disciple named John. John was one of the sons of thunder. You saw him way back in chapter 3, verse 17, when Jesus called him and called him one of the sons of thunder. We saw him in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, he was wanting to call fire from heaven on one of the cities that disregarded them. He was one who went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Peter. He saw Jesus transfigured. He saw his his glory, his heavenly nature. But here John complains. Verse 38 reads that John says to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So they have a person that they come in contact with who is casting out a demon in the name of Jesus. And so when we look at that alone, we're thinking, seems like a lot's going in the right direction. Here's a man who's, who's doing at least the right kind of thing, casting out a demon. Demons are on the opposite side of Jesus, clearly, from the Gospel of Mark. There's a, a clear delineation between the, the good and the evil. Jesus is casting out, and he's overpowering evil and, and demons. And here this man is in line with that. Same mission, casting out a demon. Not casting out the disciples or Jesus, he's casting out a demon, and, and he does it, not his own name, not anybody else, he does it in Jesus' name. So he's getting a lot right. Whoever this person is, is getting a lot, a lot right. So you've got to wonder, why are John, and John kind of probably speaking for the other disciples, why is he complaining? Have they missed what Jesus had just taught them? Right, in verse 37, Jesus had taught them that if you receive even a little one in my name... And here in verse 38, someone is casting out demons in that name. Seems like they should have been received. Seems like the, the disciples should have been thrilled about this. Even if he's a no-name person from nowhere, it's not connected with them at all. Seems like this should have been good news and someone who should have been received. If they had received the teaching in verse 37, this, man would have, this person would have been received. But the disciples see this man, see this person... And take it, and take his casting of this demon as if he's invading on their turf. It's as if they respond to him saying, hey, look at this man casting out a demon. That, that's our thing. Why is he doing that? That's, that's our thing. That's not his thing. That's, that's what we do. We've done it lots of times before. We've cast out many demons. Why is this man doing the same thing? They're not thrilled about it. They're not thrilled that one that they don't know has heard of Jesus and his work has heard of his ministry and how it's extended out. That someone has heard that Jesus has announced the kingdom of God is at hand and he trusts in that so much that he is willing to then stick, stick his neck out and say, I'm going to cast out the demon in the name of Jesus. He should have been thrilled by that, but they're not thrilled. They're bothered by it. And they confront the person because, what does John say? He was not following us. You see, the heart of John's complaint was this person was not following us. He doesn't say, Jesus, this person was not following you. This person was not following us. Now, it's subtle there because when John uses us, he's including Jesus in that. But it's important that he, he says us and not you, Jesus. 
Because John, along with the other disciples, they seem a lot more concerned about their kingdom, maybe with Jesus included, more than Jesus' kingdom. Perhaps they hadn't gotten over what happened in verse 18 where they tried to cast out a demon and were not able. And it rubbed them wrong. Then here's someone who's not with us that is able to cast out demons. Or perhaps, perhaps they hadn't let go of their argument from verse 34 where they're arguing about who's the greatest. And they can't stand to see someone else outside of their band doing something that they weren't able to do just a few verses earlier. The disciples seem more concerned about their kingdom than Jesus' kingdom. See, people living for their own kingdom are concerned with who's the greatest. They are concerned uh, when others start infringing on their territory, and they can get territorial. If you're worried about your own kingdom, you can get territorial very quickly. Unless we make the same mistake as the disciples, we need to ask ourselves what kingdom, what name, what glory we're living for and most concerned about. Perhaps we need to ask a few questions that would help unearth this by thinking about what makes us complain. That's what John does here. He complains to Jesus. What makes us complain? Perhaps it's because something's infringing upon our kingdom more than it is something's infringing on Jesus' kingdom and threatening that. Perhaps that's what's going on. What makes us the most angry? What do we get the most angry about? That Jesus' name is being tarnished or that our name is being tarnished? That Jesus' glory is at stake or that our glory is at stake? And the answers to those questions could probably lead you to the kingdom that you're most concerned about. You see, do we complain? Do we get mad? Do we get joyful? Are we thrilled for the sake of the kingdom of God or for the sake of our kingdom? Are we angry, upset, complaining, joyful, thrilled because our kingdom is infringed upon? The, the reality of, of little kingdoms, and all of us have these little kingdoms where we want to be the king and reign and rule, the reality of all of those is that they can be infringed upon. They can be broken, they can fail. But the kingdom of God wasn't infringed upon here, and Jesus affirms that. In verse 39, Jesus tells them, Don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. So Jesus directs them after their complaint to consider not their own glory, not their own name, not their own uh, kingdom, but his glory, his name, his kingdom. He lifts up their gaze, as it were. He directs them to his kingdom. And this will free them, if they lift up their gaze to his kingdom, this will free them to not think about, hey, who's on our team and who's on their team narrowly. It will free them to not have the, the categories of them and us that are much too narrow. And that's very much what is happening here with John. He says he's not with us, but his us is much too narrow. Jesus is getting them to widen their view of the kingdom of God. See, the issue is not whether this person is with these 12 disciples. The issue of most importance is much more broad of whether this person is with Jesus. Is whether this person is about his kingdom. If he's with them broadly, not through being part necessarily of physically being in location with him and his disciples, but being in relationship with Jesus. See, they're more concerned that this person is not with us than that this person is working in the name of Jesus. And Jesus is trying to work against that. 
They have drastically undervalued and undersized the kingdom of God, Jesus' life, his work, and his ministry, and its reach. You see, it's whether one is for or against Jesus that matters most. Jesus affirms that. That if you're for me and doing things in my name, then even small acts, not just casting out of demons, but small acts are of importance. Verse 41, he says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward because you belong to Christ. The the issue, again, of utmost importance is if you belong to Christ. See, they were complaining that a person was casting out demons without being with us. But Jesus says, if anyone just gives a drink of water in my name, that they have the approval of God. Work in Jesus' name, all sorts of works are approved of by God. As long as they're in Jesus' name, that is by his power and for his glory. If they're in that name, whether it's casting out demons or the small and simple things like offering a small cup of water to drink, they're approved of by God. You see, the work of the kingdom of God is so big and so broad that they are much too small in their view. But it's also so big and so broad and so good that not one small act is ignored or overlooked by the king. Every seemingly small work matters. You see, there's nothing trivial done if it's done in the name of Jesus. That is, by his power, for his glory. So Jesus uses this complaint from John, the son of thunder, as he brings it to Jesus. Jesus uses it not to sigh. Oh, man, complaining again. Not to get madder or louder, but to keep teaching them about how to be a servant of all. About the way of the cross. Continues to teach them that the the most important component of, of all that anyone can do is if it's done in the name of Jesus. The big and the small, the casting of demons, the drinks of water, matter not for size or for show of strength or for production. They matter for being for Jesus. And so while Jesus has them thinking on, on small things, on, on some of the little things, he, he wants to give them a warning. In verse 42, he turns to something little and he warns them about it. He says in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. What a stark and sobering words from Jesus. And they would have caught the picture for well, well Uh, This is not a great image that if this happens, then here's what's going to happen. It would be better if a a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's an awful picture. Now, one author says it this way, though, that the saying clearly reinforces the supreme value that Jesus places on common and ordinary disciples. He says, if you cause one of these little ones, that's sort of a common, ordinary, seemingly insignificant in the world's eyes, and they're not small or insignificant in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus warns, handle them carefully. Jesus is the good shepherd who's going to protect his sheep. And there's no sheep to Jesus that is insignificant. There's no sheep to Jesus that doesn't matter. 
Every sheep is important, and he's going to perform the, the, the duty of a shepherd to every sheep, and he's going to lovingly lay down his life for a sheep. He's going to lovingly protect his sheep. And so here, he lovingly comes up, and he seriously warns the disciples. He's pouring into them, teaching them. These are future pillars of the church. These guys are going to lead the next phase of the mission of God forward. And Jesus is pouring into them, and what's he pouring into them? What is he training them to do? To love their neighbors especially the smallest, to not overlook them or to count them insignificant, to not disregard what happens to them or what they could do to them. He protects the smallest by telling some of these leaders, these future leaders and pillars of the church, he tells them, be careful, don't lead even little ones into sin. Now, the disciples had just tried by rebuking this person up in verse 38, they had just tried to prevent a person, in essence, of exercising faith. He's doing this in the name of Jesus. On the right team, casting out demons. And they, in a sense, tried to prevent this person from exercising faith. And, and Jesus responds this way. That it's, it's not loving to cause anyone to sin or to cut off the flow of anyone's faith. It's not loving to cause anyone to sin. That seems obvious, but it needs to be said. We have this skewed view of love these days, and we need to remember that any, anything that comes off or is masquerading as love that leads into sin is not love. Love, 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us, doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing or in evil, but delights in the truth, rejoices in the truth. There is no, well, the ends will justify the means with this little one. Or they'll figure it out later. Or half-truths will do for now. None of that will work, Jesus says. He says, listen to this warning. If you cause one of these little ones to sin, it would have been better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. That's a, that's a serious warning. But he says that whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it makes me think, like, we need to know and be clear on, on what sin is. I like what New City Catechism's I like their definition of sin. It says, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. So it's rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, not being or doing what he requires in his law. Sin's essence is the devaluing of God in some way from one's heart. It's the devaluing of God in, in some way. It's in some way not living fully for God. Not living wholly to God, not loving him with all that we are. That's the essence of sin. Not living entirely for him and devaluing him in some way. And Jesus' warning encouraged the disciples not to cause anyone by either their words or their deeds to devalue God. There to be ones who don't cause anyone to sin. Don't cause anyone to devalue God. Don't cause anyone to not love God fully. Don't cause anyone to walk away from God's law. Or to not be or do what God has required. It's a warning not to discourage or put an obstacle in, in someone else's life of faith. To put an obstacle in one's life that's been being directed toward, toward God. There's a quote that one of my seminary professors said that has always stuck with me. He said, we should never despise the small steps that people take toward Jesus. I mean, that needs to be said because we can. Because some, sometimes the smallest steps toward Jesus don't seem like a big deal. It's like we look at it and we might think, well, they need a giant leap and they're just taking this tiny step and we despise it. 
or perhaps a small step toward Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, so we despise it or think little of it or don't encourage it. But we should never despise even the small steps that people take toward Jesus. It might not look like what we thought. It might be a tiny step, but don't despise it or get in the way. We need to heed this warning well and encourage and fan things into faith where we can. Heed the warning. Don't cause one of these little ones to sin. And while we're heeding warnings, Jesus gives us a whole bunch. Very vivid, very sobering warnings. Verse 43 says this, if, you, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell and to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where, the wor- where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now Jesus protects the small with his warning. He protects the seemingly insignificant. But here he's protecting all disciples by warning them about sin. Their own sin. It's vivid language. It's hyperbolic language. In other words, Jesus is speaking in a way that's over the top. Jesus is not calling with this hyperbolic language. He's not calling for the, the physical, literal mutilation of the body. I mean, Jesus is the one who came and he doesn't cut off hands, he heals them. Remember the man in the synagogue with the withered hand? Jesus told him to stretch it out that it might be healed. He doesn't come to, to chop off feet, he comes to heal feet. Remember, he tells paralytics, get up and walk, and he heals them. He, he doesn't call for the gouging out and the tearing out of eyes physically. He heals eyes. And so Jesus is not speaking of the physical mutilation of the body. He's speaking hyperbolically. But he's also not saying that the, the sin is actually caused by your hand. Is if your hand has some great power and it's pulling you different directions, and it's going, silly hand, why are you causing me to sin? He's also not saying that, or eyes, or feet, they keep causing me to sin. We read in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark that sin is, comes from where? It doesn't come from outside of us, it doesn't come from our physical, it comes from our hearts. And what's in our hearts comes out, and that's what defiles us. No, what Jesus is doing with this very vivid and hyperbolic language is he's trying to awaken the disciples with his words, with these images that they would be alive to the dangers of sin of all kinds. I think even using hands and eyes and feet kind of awakens them, not just to certain types of sin or categories of sin, but but maybe gives them a a comprehensive view of sin. Uh, Theft, but also envy, greed, pride, adultery, hands, eyes, feet. It's comprehensive in his view of sin, all kinds of sin. And he doesn't literally want the disciples to cut hands off, but I do think that it is literally better than going to hell, which is described in verse 48 as this place where their worm, we think from the reference from Isaiah, speaking of the transgressors, their worm, the transgressor's worm, does not die and the fire is not quenched. Earlier it said it's an unquenchable fire as well. I mean, it's repeated. So when Jesus speaks here, when he warns here, he's warning of, of a literal hell, a real hell, where fire is not quenched. He's making it clear with this vivid language of hell that there's a reason for these warnings. 
And he's talking about something real and substantial. And sin has real, horrendous, and eternal consequences. So Jesus, he warns. And he warns not just once, but three different times at least here. And he warns aggressively with this vivid imagery to awaken us to the reality of the dangers of sin. In that, just think about the goodness of our God. Think about the goodness of Jesus to step up and aggressively warn against sin and its consequences and its destruction. He's good. He's not wanting us to go that direction. He wants us to heed the warning and be protected from sin's consequences because he knows that sin is deadly and aggressive. And so he aggressively warns against it. He's trying to spare people of sin's consequences. And so he calls in trying to spare them for drastic action against sin. If his words of cutting and tearing sound violent then look at the sound of sin. It's violent. It leads to death. Indeed, an eternal death. And here's the reality. I know that some of us, some of you, are, are walking ensnared to sin. It might be sexual immorality and lust. It might be something like envy, jealousy, pride. It might be something like anxiety and fear has overwhelmed you. It might be gossip. It might be deception. Some are walking ensnared to sin. All of us are struggling to varying degrees with sin that's present in all of us as fallen people. And we need to hear the words of Jesus wherever we're at on that, whether we're ensnared to it and have places of of sinful strongholds in our life, or whether we're struggling and battling against sin. No matter where we're at on that spectrum, all of us are struggling in some way, and we need to hear the words of Jesus about our sin. Cut it off. You see, the path of sin is a path of death. Jesus does not go around that issue. The path of sin is a path of death. So we need to take heed of this warning unless we fall as well into a flame that's unquenchable. Jesus says, cut it off. One famous author said it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And I think that's right. We all, as those who have the presence of sin in us, need to be killing sin or it will be killing us. It is aggressive and it's never satisfied. It is constantly trying to expand and take over new territory. So the question becomes then, if we're to be killing sin before it kills us, then how do we do that? How do we kill sin? How do we cut it off? How do we tear it out? Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Aaron Ralston. It was featured in a a movie, a drama, called 127 Hours. Aaron Ralston was hiking in Utah and doing some climbing, different climbing things, and he fell, and and a boulder landed on top of his arm, and it trapped his arm. And he was all alone and called out for help, and and no one came. Of course, 127 hours kind of gives away how long he'd been there. He'd been there for many, many hours. He tried and tried to get free. He tried to break the boulder. He tried to shift it. He did everything he could with his one good arm and the rest of his body, but his arm was caught, and he couldn't get free. 
And so he started hallucinating and having all these different things go through his head. He tried different things. And finally, he determines that he's going to have to cut off his arm. It's the only way to be free is to cut off his arm. And the only way to do that was to break the bone, use a tourniquet, and just slice all the way through it. And it sounds graphic, and indeed the movie, uh, it's been a long time since I watched it, I, I think I remember it being fairly graphic in that and just gets you into the intensity, and, and even you could feel almost the sense of what he would be going through as he's cutting off his own arm. But here's the reality, is that to get free from that boulder, to get out of that place, he had to cut off every connection. He couldn't leave any part behind. It had to be completely severed. So for this man, it was great cost. It was great pain. It was brutal. It was torturous. And that's the idea. That's the idea that Jesus is getting at here too. We're talking about cutting off our sin. It has to be severed. Every part has to be cut off, cut loose. We're not just talking about outward things. We're talking about outward things and inward things. Uh, Not just behaviors, but getting all the way down into the desires. All of it has to go. And if it all doesn't go, you're not free from it, and sin leads to death. So what we have to do is we have to hold up our lives to the Word of God, and we let it read us. And we let it show us where we're caught and where we need to cut things off. We let the Spirit search us to see in us what needs to go. And whatever is shown to us by the Spirit, we need to confess, repent. Repent of whatever's found, whatever's unearthed, whatever's uncovered that the Spirit brings to us that we see in the Word that doesn't match up with what God wants and desires and what we're to be and to do and what His law says. Whatever doesn't match up within us with that is, has got to go. It's got to be completely severed. And so we repent of it. We turn away from it. We, we confess it. We confess it to God. We're called in the Scripture to confess it to one another. So it seems like that would be part of our cutting off, confess our sins to one another. And we don't just turn away from something. We turn to God as the better portion. And we turn to God by by giving to him in prayer, by going to him and asking for help, for strength, for relief, to stand up under trials and temptations to these sins that we struggle with. We turn to him and we look to his promises. We see what has he promised us regarding these kind of things and who he is in these kind of things in his word. But we have to kill it. We have to cut it off. The reality is is that if we're going to do that, it's going to cost It's going to hurt. It's going to be tortuous. But the truth is that it's possible. It's possible in Jesus. Jesus is the one who came and said that the kingdom of God is at hand. He said that it's at hand in him. That's a message of good news, of liberation for all the captives who are serving other under smaller, lesser kingdoms. It's a message of liberation because the king has come and his kingship and his reign and rule has broken to shatter all these little kingdoms and little reigns and rules that we see all over the place, including our own. That's good news. Jesus has offered to us in saying, come to me, come and be a part of this kingdom. He's offered us forgiveness for our rebellion against the one true king and the one true kingdom. He's offered us power to live a new life in his kingdom under his reign and rule. But it's not just a message of liberation. It's also a message of destination. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, come live life with me, but also I want to take you to be with me where I am and where I am going. We have an eternal kingdom, an eternal inheritance that we're moving toward if we're part of Jesus' kingdom. And so not only is there forgiveness, not only is life with God available right now, he also offers us to turn to him and live, not just now, but for eternity. He offers a better life in an eternal kingdom. And so we have not only a call and a freedom to a better life, away from sin, but we also have the reason to do it. Because it's a better kingdom anyway, an eternal kingdom, a good kingdom. Life with God is available through Jesus. Yeah, there's going to be pain, there will be loss, there will be cost undoubtedly in turning to Jesus and living under his reign and his rule and moving towards his kingdom forever, but the relief of being freed, of belonging to a kingdom with a king, and of even verse 41 says that even our small acts of being rewarded, even all of that makes being a part of this kingdom well worth it. Church, this is available to us all. Because even when we were being nonviolent, even when we were being easy and casual with our sin and on our sin, Jesus wasn't. He aggressively attacked it. He aggressively attacked sin by taking it on himself. First Peter. You likely helped inform Mark's gospel. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, 24, that he himself, Jesus, bore our sins. That's how aggressive he is with our sins, that he bore them in his own body on the tree, that he was willing to die on a cross. That's how aggressive Jesus is about sin. That's how aggressively he attacks sin. He dies to heal, the passage says. He dies to heal us, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He died to take out sin's penalty, to take out sin's power, so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. That's how aggressive Jesus was to sin, is that he took it on himself to set us free, to heal us. He died so that you could share in his victory by your faith in him. Uh, One author said that there's bad news. You are aggressive with your sin, but the good news is that Jesus is more aggressive with his grace. And that indeed is good news. Sin, sin might feel great for a time. But it will never suffer for you. It will only enslave. It only takes. It never gives. Jesus is so much better than that. He died that you might live. He suffered that you might not suffer eternally. One like that is worth living for. One worth like that is worth getting rid of a hand if necessary or a foot or tearing out an eye if necessary. But one like that is worth giving our whole lives to. Indeed, throwing our whole bodies up to him in sacrifice to him should he choose. And it's good news that he's worthy of that because that's exactly what Jesus reminds us is part of discipleship. In verse 49, he, he speaks in this language of sacrifice. Verse 49 says, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now in the Old Testament, when, Jesus, when God required sacrifices, some of those sacrifices had to be seasoned with salt. Salt had to be added to those sacrifices. They were accompanied with salt. And Jesus is bringing that principle to the disciples. Now one commentator says this, that the thought of sacrifice of an offending member of the body, which Jesus said, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, 
It's here carried a step further. Every disciple is to be a sacrifice for God. So the, the image of, of sacrifices has moved from, from cutting it off so that you might not be punished to instead offering yourself up that you might be purified. Indeed, Romans 12.1 calls for the sacrifice of the body, right? It does not say that you are to be living sacrifices to God. We are to offer everything up. That's what disciples are. Disciples are to be living sacrifices, and sacrifices are to be seasoned with salt. And that's the principle that Jesus is applying. In other words, they're to be purified. Again, Peter says something about this that we think kind of goes along with this, as he probably informs some of the writing of the Gospel of Mark anyway. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, now for a little while, if necessary, that you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. They're to be seasoned with salt, salted with fire. They're to be purified the way Peter talks about it, and they're purified and were salted by, by trials. Jesus had already called them to deny themselves, to take up their cross, to follow after him, and he's showing them how to do it. He's showing them how it will happen. It looks like tearing out eyes and going through fiery trials. Those are costly images to be sure. But that's what Jesus is saying is the way of the cross, the way of discipleship, the way of following me. And he goes on to say that disciples are, are salty, and they're to be salty. In other words, that they are, there are those who, having been purified and being purified, have this salty nature in the world. They have the saltiness. Salt was a, a preserving thing. It was a preservative. It was needed as a preservative. And so the disciples, they're, they're salty in that sense. They're preserving influencing, influences on the corrupting world around them. They're also not just salty in that they're preserving, but they're also distinct. They're different. Look, in their saltiness, what does it lead to with one another? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So they're distinct. And not only are they preserving things that are corrupting outside them, but they're not being corrupted inside. They're peace with one another, care for one another, unified with one another. There's peace there. And how does that happen? Because they're purified. Because they have peace with this God as part of the kingdom of God. Because they're willing to, to take on the cost of discipleship and following after Jesus, knowing that that's the way of the cross. They have peace with Jesus through that cross. They carry their own cross. And their own cross goes all the way over into how they relate with one another where they have peace. Now, it's interesting that Jesus stops there. Isn't this what started this section of teaching from Jesus? I mean, we look back in verse 38. John comes and complains that someone else is working in the name of Jesus. He's not at peace with one another. And so Jesus teaches them, and it brings them around to it. Be at peace with one another. He raises their head to take a wider view of the kingdom of God, to understand that it's bigger and better than they think. He calls them to a greater commitment than probably that they even knew. You see, those who are all in with Jesus and with his kingdom are those who are for those working in his name. And those who are part of the kingdom of God are those who cut off 
hands and tear out eyes if necessary at great cost if necessary and offer themselves up as living sacrifices unto their Lord. They are those who by doing these things have continual peace with one another because it's not about them and their glory and their name and their honor and their renown, but it's about Jesus' kingdom and his glory and his name and his renown. And so we're willing to cut off our own hands and be at peace with one another and take up our own cross and deny ourselves as long as we get to be a part of this kingdom with Jesus. The disciples, they seem to be painfully in process, stuck in a cycle of misunderstanding, and can't we relate? Don't we feel painfully in process, often stuck in misunderstanding? But here's the good news. Jesus teaches the way. He lovingly comes alongside, and he gently teaches and shows the way. And it's the way of the cross. He's been serious about this. They don't understand it, and he keeps pressing it in further and further. The way to follow me is a way of a cross. And he doesn't just teach that way, but he shows that way. Shows it by bearing it, even. And he does the same for us. Church, this is one who's worth following. This is one that we can follow even unto death. This is one worth denying ourselves and taking of our cross and going after. It's going to be costlier than we know. But we know because of what Jesus has done and who he is that it will absolutely be worth it. Let's move forward in that hope together. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thanks for being our good shepherd who's willing to warn in order to protect, who's willing to wound in order to heal, who's willing to call us to costly discipleship, but who's also willing to walk that path in front of us as our pioneer and perfecter. May we follow you. You are the way. Would you help us to be faithful in following it? Give us strength to cut off things that need to be cut off. Give us courage to tear out what needs to be torn out. Help us to count the cost of walking away from sin and following after you. But God, may we do that with the right kind of knowledge, that with you there is acceptance, belonging, and eternal inheritance in a kingdom with you as our good and gracious king. Oh, that's so worth it. We pray that you would help us to be faithful members of that kingdom. And may that kingdom come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.